Um, Uktaran, thank you very much for meeting me today. There are, this, I just want to take you back to February 2017, a time when we could all shake hands and um, yes. assemble freely. And you made a state visit to Cuba. And um, in Havana, you made three speeches, uh, at least three I heard. And I wished that they had been televised and shown in Ireland. And uh, I, they're online, and I suggest that anyone would go and look at them. And so we're sitting, a group of us, um, it's the Association of the Studies of Irish Literature. And um, it, it's a long and, and textured address, but towards the end of it, you say something which I wish, which again, I wanted you to um, talk about more. And it is this, that, that in this um, centenary of commemorations, it allows us not only to, um, in a way, um, make the narrative more dense and more textured and more complicated, but also to rethink what it means to write about the past at all. And this deals with a small matter, which I think a novelist deals with as an historian, with the matter of silence, with that you're dealing all the time as you write a novel with what's not been said or a character that has not emerged yet. It's all the time that sentences are coming out of that. And indeed, historians, especially in recent years, have started to work with that idea, that they deal with people who, who left very little sign of themselves, rather than only matters of large power in politics. And you, at the end of that speech, started to talk about a phenomenon called subaltern studies. And subaltern studies would have arisen, I suppose, in, in Southeast Asia and in India, with this whole matter of just millions of people who left no trace whose names are not inscribed in any archive. What do you do about them if you're an historian? And what you then went on to talk about, if you only concentrate on that and you miss the, the source of their oppression, you, you're actually not writing the story. In other words, that you have to do both. So, so I just wonder if you could talk sure. about that a bit more. I think that you've touched uh, on this in some of your own discussion about your work, Colm. First of all, may I say, uh, I'm honoured that you have come to see me and so pleased uh, for so many reasons, but I, I very much honour your work. But listening to you speaking, I think, in quite a recent uh, uh, programme, uh, you, you mention about uh, the minor figures, as some would call it, but of course they're not minor at all in a painting. And you say, like, for example, you say the Roman soldier who was present at the crucifixion and so on. I, I think myself, for example, of the figures in the Caravaggio painting of the taking of Christ and so on. And it struck me so much about it that you have all of these people at points of oppression and points of uh, revolution. And they were there. And... I don't think you can reasonably, morally, say that they were required to have it all worked out in their head as to why they were there, no more than you can say as to how they will recount it. And the issue in relation to historiography has been that it is often dealt with what I would call the manifestations and indeed the detritus of power while losing, if, uh, if you like, the uncertainty of the full frame, from for which, in order to deal with that, you would need a kind of a, ph a phenomenological perspective. 
and it raises issues. I dealt with it practically when I became president, and I was trying to design a way in which we would do remembering. And that's a grand word, the way to do it. If you did it in a hyphenated way, remember, you're putting members back in. So if you do it without a hyphen, you can either say there is a distinction between an, uh, 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 putting all of the people back in. Then, if you like to say the word commemoration, you are making a selection inevitably of events and happenings, and then you go on to a celebration in which you're in fact making a further choice. And all of these uh, selections uh, raise problems because you have to, first of all, know what a moral responsibility you have for giving the basis of making your selections if you're going to be doing it formally like that as the historiography has done and but also i think you have to take into account what use will be made of your selections in other words how the selections will resonate with those who will receive the images I think one of the great things that we have done in the 1916 period, uh, when I was dealing with that period, was, for example, the women who had taken part, significant figures uh, in relation to the actual revolution itself, uh, the families, and so they came back, they came into the accounts we've had uh, this time in 2016. And they didn't, we didn't do hardly very much at all at 75 years. And at 50 years, it was very much still very military. But we had still left out a great deal. And when I came on to the period of doing the period now that we're doing now, the war is over. Uh, they said the First World War, now 1418 war is over. There are things happening in Europe. Uh, Europe is in turmoil. So we, we're bringing more of that into the discussion. Uh, I think it's very important to, to do that. Um, for example, I, I said that the, histori the historiography tests itself regularly. I think there's been a good, there has been a good debate about critiquing nationalism. But one of the real difficulties I had was with the concept of imperialism. And it was amazing to me how, uh, if you like, more, how much more difficult that was. And uh, because there are many, many aspects to that. There is, you, you, these are not discrete entities because forms of emancipation, forms of resistance take on it. This is very, very much uh, Fanon and all of those. Which it, this is not necessarily an Irish thing at all. It's as you say that uh, people in opposing each other take on elements of the other into themselves. And indeed, one of the most things to my mind, there's a pathos in it too. The, how I have been more recently dealing with the one, what is not taken into account in historiography is class. And in my most recent paper that I gave on land, social class, gender and violence, you could see in a way, in a way that the social class survived the moment of independence and new forms of distinction imprinted themselves on the stage. So I, I, I think I, I have just got it. Somebody sent me, I think, Seamus Dean's uh, 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 book that's been published. Oh, I've read that, yeah. It's terribly good. Had, in where I think he has uh, um, uh, uh, an article on tone 
And if I, I'm, I have to try and re remember what, what his approach to tone was, when, when he spoke about it, he said it had all the energy of the French ideas in it. But that notion that you could be personally free and that a nation could have recognition and that you could be not dominated. I think that when one looks at so much of what became, I think, a, a distorted form in a way uh, uh, of nationalism, it's, it's the, the egalitarian personal freedom that was there, if you like, in the, the French ideas became a very weak light. Yes, I think you can find it in Wexford in 1798 that it comes from America, that there were people involved in the rebellion who had actually been in America at the time of the revolution in America. And Thomas Paine. Yeah, yeah but, I, but, but I mean ordinary, I, I mean more ordinary, simple, literate people had actually got the pamphlets. But then, unfortunately, what came next was, had nothing to do with French ideas or with rebellion. And so the... I mean, I mean, I remember this idea of commemoration in 1998. I think everyone in Wexford began to look again at what, they, what, the, what had actually happened, the actual killings, who got killed, who got murdered, yeah. who, who did not survive the actual rebellion. And so, so the idea of revisionism moved into sort of every area that we thought we knew about. We thought Wexford rebellion was heroic and was only heroic, and was the, yeah. we sang the ballads, and the street names were changed. And then a big shock came to our system to realize, you know, honestly, the word scullabogue did not exist when I was growing up. It came into being sometime in the early 1990s. And we all had to start saying scullabogue, which was where a group of Protestants were massacred in the most horrible way. Yes. And that had to become part of the narrative. I was thinking also about, um, Historians like Paul Rouse and William Murphy have done really good work on the yeah. GAA. And everybody up at a certain point thought that really the 1916 rebellion and the revolutionary period was nourished hugely by the GAA. And that players tended to be patriots and tended to be activists. Well, they pointed out that this is not the case, that sometimes a team, half of them, would have nothing whatsoever to do with the revolutionary period. And I love that idea of something you thought that was true being questioned and being shown that the facts actually suggest a much more complicated narrative. Well, you have to be very careful about the excess that can come the, from the other side. For example, I remember uh, uh, Thomas McGilla, uh, John de Courcy Ireland, myself and others, a small group of us were in favour, uh, were celebrating the French, were recalling the French Revolution. And uh, I was invited to a number of seminars, but some of the participants uh, couldn't speak about the, the revolution. They wanted to speak about the terror. And there was one very good conversation, I remember, when a very distinguished uh, contributor had to be asked twice by the person sharing the thing. But it's the revolution we're talking about, not the terror. We had to, to move back. And that is the difficulty uh, in doing this. I think going back to the idea of getting all, all of the people in the painting, for example, or all of the people at the event, uh, there is, uh, I think, uh, a, a way in, in, in which this is put together. 
an external event. There's no doubt whatever. If you take those days in 1916, uh, the actual happening itself in the, in, the, in the post office, but the whole temper of the country is changed by the executions. Again, uh, another big external event, the suggestion of conscription uh, in, in 1918, puts people with disparate views of an autonomy and disparate views of independence, it puts them together. Gets the bishops fired up, yeah? Yes, yeah, and yeah. they... Well, the, in the, the 1980s, there's no doubt at all about it. The people who have been treated badly have been, in fact, actually the, 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 the Labour Party, in a way, because the trade unions. The trade unions are the people who come first out of the... in relation to opposing conscription. Then you get later on... Everyone else joins in then, and then you get indeed, as you are right, you have um, uh, uh, the, the bishops. But there again is another theme in history that is well worth looking at, mm. uh, are the consequences. How does that happen? If you say now, as you have just said, that the bishops come involved in the anti-conscription campaign, uh, the bishops, uh, in the case of the land war uh, in, in, in the 1880s, they have a very interesting, they, you have some local people, uh, side, some local clerics, curates siding with the conges, but at the same time the new graziers and so on will in fact have the ear of the bishops. And, and then earlier than that, you might say, as I have been looking at the 19th century for purposes of how did it influence the 20th century, you, you look at O'Connell's campaign and there are many admirable things about Daniel O'Connell, including his principled view in relation to the United States and in relation to, to racism and, in, and, and his principled position, and also his view in relation to liberation movements. But there's no doubt whatever that after he holds his meetings and about his involvement with the church, and in other words, that you have a clericalist tone now after 1829. And remember as well that the other side of it is that's the 40 shilling freeholders. You had the number of people who, who can actually vote are less after that than the people before, than before because uh, you, you have a, a property modification. Yes. But as well as that, you might say that the issue now of the land, uh, the, issue, the issue of home rule, uh, the issue later, uh, uh, will in fact actually uh, have a certain tone in it. And we have yet, I have had three seminars, Mocknuff seminars, I'm having three more, one in November now, and two more next year. But you look at how this influenced the character of the state. I have to say that, you know, we were just a few moments ago we were talking about the Republic, the, rep the, the French ideas, and their strength or weakness within the nationalist tradition. By the time you come to the 1930s, and what has been created is truly appalling. It's appalling in every way, in relation to sensibility, in relation to literature, in relation to the, to the, to, to, to literally, little, the, is it not hateful that some of what is directed against minorities, and so on. And again, you might say, which I often think about, I often think about, you know, uh, 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 I think part uh, uh, just so the 30s is an extraordinary time. You you have the the, the Mayo librarian case, uh, and Letitia Dunbar Harrison, who ends up 
editing uh, the, 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 the military magazine uh, and uh, could a, a, prod, a woman educated in Trinity, can she be trusted to put books into the hands of children? You have yeah. the burning of the Connolly before even the, the Communist Party can move into it. You have the slashing of the the, 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 the the hoses of the fire brigade in case the building, uh, even though there are people still escaping across the roofs. You have the 1936 uh, 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 Spanish Civil War. You you have the 1934, the banning of crossroads dancing. You could go on and on in a period of that. So where did that come from? Mm. I think that that is of utmost importance. And when I look at how people are building up uh, to that nightmare of the 1930s, and it is that. Yes. What are they building up to? The, the, what are they using, in, in a way? Yes, I wonder and, if, and they're if using, the... they... You could dismiss uh, the word Bolshevik. They, and what is the record? This is something very interesting is that people who had very little in Ireland were aware of what was happening. The miners in Arigna, they, they were happening what was happening in Russia. They were aware of what was happening in Europe. There were many people who were older again who had actually phrases that were drawn from Latin and Greek classics. Mm. And th this is a kind of the notion that it is a modern thing that Ireland became European. Ireland was European a very long time ago, and people knew and he heard phrases from the war, and these were being discussed in the pubs, and for the nicknames that they gave local people, they would call someone Marshalls because of, after Marshall McMahon, and they would call other people different names, because they knew what was going on, but the whole idea was, was a keeping control. Mm. And in this, uh, to my mind, uh, is something that you have to get past as well. Yeah. Um, to come back to Havana, and um, there was a particular speech you made, um, which I think really, really did surprise people and challenge people, um, which was about the implication, how implicated, how involved Ireland was in the empire, and how yes. this in turn has been reduced to silence, and indeed how involved Ireland was in slavery which is something that we were not taught in school and was not part of the narrative, but that I think what you said was we have to confront this because it's real because it, and, and because it matters. Yes, I did. Uh, now, I, 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 I gave... Uh, I went to, to Montserrat twice. I went to Montserrat... This is, this, is the, this is the island of Montserrat in the Caribbean. The island of Montserrat yeah. in the Caribbean, yeah. yeah. I, I, I presented a, a programme. I wrote and presented a, a programme called The Other Emerald... No, it was, yes, it was the 19th, for Channel 4, yeah. I think it was their St. Patrick's Day programme in 1986, and I did it with Michael Beatty asked me, and, uh, and I did it with DBA Television from Belfast. I went up then to Belfast for the editing for five or six weeks afterwards, but the wonderful period. But when, when we were making it, uh, uh, I, I looked uh, at... That island in the Caribbean would have very much went to, I said, I met that programme, then Hurricane Hugo came, 
So that film actually is the, that is regularly used in, in Montserrat today because it's the island as it was before the hurricane. Oh, right. And I went back a second time uh, after the volcano and I gave a paper and I was really dealing with Professor Atchison, I think's work. He wrote a book called If the Irish Rule the World. And I, I think he has, I, I was disagreeing with him for this reason, is that he's not specific about which Irish were involved. And now I can make it very clear. Probably the first Irish that arrive, in, 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 they were somewhere around 1632. But the tradition was, let us say, in the Blake papers, and if you take the big names of the tribes of Galway, there, there was some reaction to my dealing with all of this originally. But let us say the, the mayor of Galway, uh, uh, he, uh, the second son of the, the families, the Blake's Lynches, they were, they were really Anglo-Irish uh, families. The second son would go to, to the Caribbean and it, he writes back and he says he hopes to make a fortune. Now, what was that fortune about? Well, it began with, uh, uh, originally, one was talking about tobacco. And you have different forms of labor. And I think you're getting quite an amount of indentured people who are promised a suit of clothes, five acres of land, uh, and when their period of indenture is over, that attracts something. Then you also have convicts being sent there. But for once you do the transition from tobacco to sugar, then it's intensive. They need all the land so that you forget about your plot of land. And now, in fact, actually, black slaves from Africa are, in fact, cheaper and easier to manage uh, than, in fact, the, the white people that you had as indentured. They're also, and I have to put it cruelly, they're also used for breeding in religion. You know. And what happens then is that on the slave plantation, you have previous whites uh, uh, who are now drivers. This is what they would be described by the descendants in, in Montserrat. They were drivers. Now, there is a historian uh, who is the, happened to be the governor of Montserrat, Howard Fergus. And Howard Fergus, let us say, when we would be speaking about St. Patrick, he would speak about the black identity of, of, of answers in Africa. And here was I coming and speaking about the Irish connection. Now the Irish connection could have been, could, could had been misrepresented, let us say on St. Patrick's Day. Mm -hmm. On the island of Montserrat in the Caribbean they celebrate St. Patrick's Day for nearly a month at some times and like that. And you had people from America coming and so forth. But St. Patrick's Day is also the day when the slaves revolted. So you had people celebrating it from, because it's the, recalling the slaves' revolt. Why on St. Patrick's Day? Because as they say, they're, they're white masters, by which that meant that Irish people plus the drivers would be inebriated and uh, would be drunk. And so but that plot was, uh, was revealed by a domestic servant and there, was, there, was there, there were executions. And then I also dealt with something that was very interesting as well, and that was the way in which in the plantation house they had quadrilles and whatever. And when I was visiting, I noticed in many cases, the slaves looked in through the windows and they saw the movements of the dance. Mm. But they uh, were impeaching the music with their feet. So you can see, in fact, how, if you like, 
These dances transported from the plantation class were taken and used differently and are used in the, in the forms of the dance. And my, uh, Professor George Irish uh, did some work on that and I interviewed him. But all of that was, but where about the Irish part of it? Yes, there, there's no doubt about it. Is that uh, um, the fenestration of the big houses of Ireland uh, was paid for uh, by a sugar uh, money that came from the sugar plantations and therefore for, is in ex was connected to slavery. Uh, as well as that, they were very bad at it. It didn't. It wasn't so successful, because when you when I look at it, I it's for others to look at it. But but uh, they didn't. You don't see in the plantation house great libraries. Uh, they they overdressed. They had a very bad diet, and they died fairly young. But yes, I think one of the biggest uh, weddings uh, that takes place in the in the and it goes into the 18th century is between one of the Blakes and the Lynches on the island of Nevis and so on and so therefore you might say that in many cases this is yes when you're dealing with imperialism you yes there is an Irish involvement in the armies I suppose the most dramatic is our Metsa in India uh, where you have the slaughter there where the governor is uh, what, of what Irish is, is he? There's, uh, he was born in Ireland, reared in England and so forth. They are not, if you like, drawn from the main body of the, uh, of the Irish. They're more likely to have had some connection uh, to the 8,000 landlords who had the, the greater portion of the land of Ireland. So while Dr Atchison is right to speak about they are Irish, but he needs, in fact, actually to say which Irish, of which Irish is he speaking. Um, in Havana, you also made a speech uh, about um, economic policy. And um, in this book, in, in your new book, Reclaiming the European State, I could <laughs> quote to you several passages where you really very, you make a very clear case that the policy of austerity in a time of um, e you know, economic bust really was um, an ideology which, which could actually be challenged and needed very, to be challenged very forcefully. I, I wonder if you think that that challenge that you and philosophers like Habermas in Germany yes. have made, and indeed the Greek government have made in, in various ways, various manifestations of a Greek government, that they've actually changed things or that there is now a view that should an economic downturn come again, we might have a better way of handling it? I think there's no doubt whatsoever. Uh, that uh, what we are uh, now discussing acknowledges. Uh, some people have ran into the bushes and uh, are afraid to acknowledge it, but that it was a disaster. Disaster by uh, very much in their own terms. Uh, what, it, 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 what it did uh, uh, really was, it, it came from an assumption that the character of a financialized global economy was the starting point. And therefore, what you needed to do was to look at what some of the metrics of the financialized economy delivered regionally and into different countries had to be taken care of first, and therefore that the people's behavior would follow. The result was impoverishment. It was very interesting. There was resistance here in Ireland. 
uh, for example, I think, to uh, reducing the minimum wage. There was a comprehensive resistance uh, uh, in, for a period in Greece, and there was a, an adjusted resistance in Portugal. Portugal has said we can, in fact, actually revive the domestic economy, and a very clever set of measures taken. But all of these assumptions, what were involved in it is that my book uh, raises much, many questions, but my, it's a book of my speeches given in different circumstances. But what I was really at, I suppose, it's something that, 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 that is primitive in me in a way, is if you were in a minority for nearly all of your life, as I have been in many cases, you get used to at least, you're entitled to know at least the quality of the argument. Yeah. And you need to know who, who, what the opponent thinks. So what I w was most worried about was the fact that all of this was happening as if it was a kind of an inevitable, rather like a pandemic even, that it was something that you couldn't understand. So I would say, what are the assumptions of the policies being offered? We are now at a point where people have said, with that, this was crazy, uh, even on your own terms of getting high levels of consumption. But in between, you have had new movements in relation to sustainability movements in relation to climate change, in relation to gender issue. And I suppose if I was giving that speech in Havana now, I would be saying that the important challenge is to take the forms of consciousness of these movements and put them together and bring it together in an eco what you might call a an eco-social economics, where you're talking about issues of ecology, issues of society, and issues of participation and justice together. Curiously, it has moved that way. The, the economic theory is now speaking about social economics, but it didn't before. You have eco-economics that is there. You have people nearly, no, anybody, nobody is, can in fact reject sustainability and so on. So it has changed. But what I, I suppose, uh, uh, always standing at the back of my mind, uh, and it's to do with my own life as well, in many cases, is. I do believe, and it's essential in my speeches here, that there is nothing so complicated that if properly uh, explained cannot be understood by every citizen. And, uh, and uh, that's a driving part for me. And the next part is that having been, and that is the basis, if you like, of a moral discourse. And I suppose running through my book uh, in a way is that, that all of the subjects uh, must have, in fact, some kind of moral departure point in relation what what is a telos, what is an end point of it all. Mm. Uh, and uh, my hope still is that I think, uh, I think we are now in a period of great flux and change again. Uh, and uh, the, the, sad, the tragic part of it is that it's sometimes uh, so slow. But the biggest threat to, to not, uh, I think what we had, we had an economic, we had a banking crisis uh, that became an economic crisis, uh, that became a social crisis, and that had the potential to create a democratic crisis. That's where Europe is now. Yeah. I remember having a, giving a, a, an interview to Le Monde, because uh, that caused some difficulty for some people, not for anyone else. I was on my way to visit President Hollande. I discussed it personally with Hollande. And Hollande actually and I agree, uh, saw well, that, that he was facing a choice. Right at the very point you're saying, 
Should he, for example, uh, give a lead as the president of France to the alternative to the austerity model, which some people have thought might be possible, given what was happening in Greece and elsewhere. And at a crucial point, he was influenced by the German uh, Chancellor's view, and he chose the other one, which I think, as he was looking back on it, as I understand in other conversations I've had, is that it's something that I don't think he regrets. And therefore, wh what, what he might have done then has, is happening now, in which you have people, you can now speak about social Europe, and you can be mainstream. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, we were talking at the beginning about silence, and um, um, I've just been in your study and seeing the books piled up and realising that how much of your view, how many of your views come from reading and thinking, but they also come, don't they, from personal experience yes. uh, and from bitter experience, and indeed from experience that, uh, that for, for a lot of people is silent, is people don't talk about. I'm thinking particularly about a poem of yours called Betrayal, Okay. which I think affected me very deeply because for a lot of people who fought in the Irish Revolution, um, who, were, who were out in 1916, who were in the War of Independence or indeed the Civil War, when it was over, it wasn't as though they all went to Dublin and got jobs. It, it's a myth that that happened. Yeah. Some people did. Some people became ministers, civil servants. There were, I mean, there were many opportunities. But for other people, especially in rural Ireland, I think, when they went back and the peace broke out, the same people owned the same shops, same farmers owned the same farms, and the same bishop was in the, in the diocese. And there, were, there weren't great, let's say, there, there were, in the case of my grandfather, when he came back, um, it wasn't as though everyone was offering him a job. He was welcomed home the first night. But I don't think he really worked again. And of course, that affected everyone's life. And, and it made the Irish Revolution seem strange. And the only time I've ever really come across a version of this is your poem, is in your poem, The Betrayal, and in your account of your father. And I don't know if you want to read the poem. It's a painful, it's a very personal poem. But, but maybe instead of, I mean, if you want to read it, it'd be great, but perhaps you could just talk about it. Okay. Well, there are three poems, I think, that in, the, in those early collections uh, that t are drawn, uh, are informed by personal experience. Because remember, when I was writing the poems, I had been uh, through in, uh, literature and I had it, so on. So. They're not instinctive in the sense of being written at the time. They were, I wrote the poem to Betrayal, I think, over four years. I had bits and pieces of it forming in my head. I finished it, I remember, on the train between Galway and Dublin, and I remember weeping when I did. And uh, But the three poems, I think, that tell a great deal are The Betrayal, which is a poem about the death of my father. The, there's a poem, uh, Katie's Song, which is about my aunt that reared me. Oh, Katie, I'm making my way along a lane of hazel. I'm, and then the, there is a song uh, called Brothers, uh, which is about the relationship between my brother and myself, and where, again, he would stay in Clare and I would be leaving again and so forth. Um, I think there's two things in it. I, I certainly have no difficulty. Uh, it is, I, you are right about the poem. It's very interesting about that poem, Betrayal, about where it appeared later. It appeared, it was used by the, the workers in the Irish press. After the Irish press had been closed, they, they put together an Irish press and they had my poem on the front page. Oh. Yeah. So, but I, I, I will. It would be modest if you would read it. But it would. Uh, uh, but, um, I, I think uh, 
I, I probably, would, I think, I, I, nowadays, maybe it's uh, the only way I have become slightly mellow is I think I might have been hard on Mr. De Valera, but you have asked for the poem. I asked for the poem. This man is seriously ill, the doctor. So I'll begin again. The Betrayal, a poem from my father. This man is seriously ill, the doctor had said a week before, calling for a wheelchair. It was after they rang me to come down and persuade you to go in. Condemned to remember your eyes as they met mine in that moment. Before they wheeled you away, it was one of my final tasks. To persuade you to go in, a Judas chosen not by apostles but by others more broken. And I was in part relieved when they wheeled you from me, down that corridor confused without a backward glance. And when I had done it, I cried out on the road, hitching a lift to Galway, and away from the trouble of your cantankerous old age, and rage too at all that had in recent years befallen you. All week I waited to visit you, but when I called you had been moved to where those dying too slowly were sent, a poorhouse no longer known by that name, but in the liberated era of La Masse, given a saint's name, Saint Joseph's. Was he Christ's father, patron saint of the worker, the mad choice of some pietistic politician? You never cared, nor did you speak too much. You had broken in attendance glasses, the holy nurse told me, when you were admitted. Your father is a very difficult man, as you must know, and social welfare is slow, and if you would pay for the glasses, I would appreciate it. It was 1964, just after optical benefit was rejected by de Valera, for poorer classes in his republic, who could not afford, as he did, to travel to Zurich for their regular tests and their rimless glasses. It was decades earlier. You had brought me to see him pass through Newmarket on Fergus. As the brass and reed band struck up, cheeks reddened, distended to the point where a child's wonder was as to whether they would burst as they blew their trombones. The Sacred Heart procession in De Valera you told me were the only occasions when their instruments were taken from the rusting galvanised shed where they stole them in anticipation of the requirements of church and state. Long before that, you had slipped in ditches and dugouts, prayed in terror at ambushes with others who later debated whether de Valera was lucky or brilliant in getting the British to remember that he was an American. And that debate had not lasted long in concentration camps in Newbridge and the Curra, where mattresses were burned as the Gombians decided that the new state was a good thing, even for business. In the dining room of St Joseph's, the potatoes were left in the middle of the table in a dish towards which you and many other Republicans stretched feebler hands that shook. Your eyes were bent as you peeled with a long thumbnail. I had often watched scrape a pattern on the leather you had toughened for our shoes. Your eyes, when you looked at me, were a thousand miles away, now totally broken, unlike those times even of rejection, when you went to sixty for jobs you never got, too frail to load vans or manage the demands of selling. And I remember when you came back to me, your regular companion, on such occasions and said, they think that I'm too old for the job. I said that I was 58, but they knew that I was past 60. A body ready for transportation, fit only for a coffin that made you too awkward for death at home. 
the shame of a coffin exit through a window since you hear where my mother told me. You asked only for her to place her cool hand under your neck. And I was there when they asked, would they give you a Republican funeral in that month when you died between the end of the first programme for economic expansion and the second. I look at your photo now, taken in the beginning of bad days with your surviving mates in Limerick. Your face haunts me, as do these memories, and all these things have been scraped in my heart, and I can never hope to forget what was, after all, a betrayal. Michael, do you thank you very much for reading that. And I, I don't want to end on it because I want to move into an idea that I think is absolutely crucial in your politics is taking pleasure in ideas as though they're sort of sensuous things. And there's a moment in reclaiming the European state, which is sort of gorgeous, where you're talking about lecturing in UCG. And your design a course, and it's often really great putting titles on courses, it's called Deviance, Crime and Punishment. And you bring Foucault to Galway. And you bring in the whole new complicated French analysis of what, what crime and punishment has meant and what control and power has meant. And of course, the, the lecture hall, and I know people who were there who said this was the most exciting thing happening in Galway at that time. But, but I think it, it is, isn't it part of the miracle that politics can make and that life can offer, which is that somebody who could write that poem and, that, and with describing all those circumstances could end up rocking you know, at, at a chamber in UCG with ideas that are just fresh from France. And uh, this has been a crucial part of your life, hasn't it? The, the actual business of taking pleasure in things. Yes, I went, you see, I was just back from Indiana University. And uh, I, I had, there, of course, the, you have, uh, uh, there were, there, these lectures were available. And I remember very, very distinctly thinking about, uh, feel like, how behaviour uh, uh, is, is construed in, 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 in writing. And I suppose I, I think that maybe what struck me most uh, was the sheer variety of behaviour uh, as it was then being written about. Uh, in, in the United States, but also the response to it. C. Wright Mills was the, soci the sociologist, the sociological imagination that had shaken everything. But now you had new, you had new people writing in, indeed about the family in different ways. Just, it was still very conservative. But I had began studying criminology and out of the original studies on crime and criminal types, it came a new interest in, if you like, the mind of the criminal. And then the other thing, it shaded into something. It isn't only what is judged by the state as a crime, but what is different is important. And therefore that went on to then is that what influences the construction of the self? And I remember very, very much there was a, a, a stray article around putting the body back in. Uh, and it was about the neglect of the body. So here you were in, in a way uh, about, I remember a, a, a colleague of mine in, in the Indianapolis area project uh, did his MA on, on self-estimations of the body. 
where he had very horrific consequences of people looking and describing what they thought was their body, then looking at the mirror, then being told something else, and then seeing he was... I thought it was quite a cruel piece, in a, in a way. But what I was more interested in was the definition of what was different and the different constructions uh, of it. And... Um, I have a feeling, you know, uh, that 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 many of the people who were coming to my lectures were coming to try to understand themselves, and uh, I I had I had some people who travelled from Dublin, uh, and uh, I I remember I was getting into trouble because I was a young lecturer, I was twenty nine and uh, twenty eight, twenty nine, and. Uh, um, uh, I would borrow chairs from neighbouring lecture places and things like that. So th and there was a certain, uh, maybe a minor jealousy about who was this person giving these sensational t talks about. Indeed, I spoke about Foucault, I spoke about R.D. Lang, I spoke about Cooper, I spoke about alternative versions of the family. But the most important thing, I suppose, uh, uh, was really was about sexuality as well. And um, I, I remember uh, I had access when I was studying in Indiana. I looked at some of the human relations area files, and I would I spoke about all the different types of behaviour that at different stages had been proscribed, and in fact all the kinds of behaviour that had been tolerated, indeed others that had been prescribed. And as you looked across all the different cult cultures, I suppose the, the nearest thing to a universal prohibition is probably the incest taboo and what else. So I had been to the, the uh, social anthropology in Manchester as well. So I was bringing a kind of an anthropological view from, if you like, the sheer range of human behaviours and the attitudes towards them. And then also I had drawn from the United States what was being contemporary written in, 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 in about every aspect of different, different unusual behaviour. Mm -hmm. And then what I was also saying to do about it is, well then how, have, how is this described academically? And how is power exercised in relation to deciding what is mainstream what is deviant, the word is can't be used now probably, but uh, that is the word that was in use at, at that particular time. And uh, it was, I remember, uh, uh, well, the, the, I had a call, my, my dear Reverend Edmund, Edmund Dugan, who was the professor at the time, uh, saying to me, after the one of them we met, he said, Michael, they told me that you have taken it all apart for them, but did you put it back together for them? And I would say to him, I'm not so sure that I did. I, I was really not, I, I drew a distinction a bit, very, very much with that. It wasn't the purpose of any of my lectures in that area. Remember, I, I had a joint department of political science and sociology. It was in that particular course, it wasn't my uh, purpose to, uh, to abuse my position in any sense. It was really to introduce people to the literature on human behavior and also to try and explain the power constructions and how they, how, they, how they leaned on that. For example, on the crime, when we were dealing with white-collar white crime wasn't being observed and how it was the lower classes who were so, so on. Prison policy, all of that. And then, uh, uh, and then in relation to, the, to, to behavior and choice and so forth. And uh, I, I suppose uh, uh, 
I had, I remember one of the papers I used was one on, 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 on Oscar Wilde and, and I had explained how, I think I would have been started with William Gaunt's book, The Aesthetic Adventure, and I would point out how significant it was that in understanding the Wilde trials and understanding the public response to Wilde's position, that how social class was very important that it was, in fact, when you began to move across the class boundaries, yes. that it gave a whole different meaning to, let us say, the Queensbury response and so forth and, and, and so on. So the other side, I suppose, about those, le those lectures at that time was, I've even given you a clue now about it, was that people were interested, that I always, from the beginning, was interested in qualitative sociology, and I would draw my examples from literature because I, I, my first degree was in English, English language and literature, old and middle and modern English. Yeah, and yeah, I wonder if this period that you're talking about, the, say the early 1970s, I, I came to UCD in 1972, and yes. certainly figures like Dennis Donoghue and Seamus Dean, who had studied abroad, who had done their postgraduate yes. work in America or yes. in England, and came back fired up with ideas and treated 17-year-olds like adults, as though this was something we all needed to know. And I, that idea that of the crowded it. lecture hall, and no one ever said we were being trained for some, for some for job or for some purpose in the world. We were all, in a way, wondering what we were going to do once we left these institutions, because they were so interesting, uh, enfolding, engrossing. And um, this is something, again, that's um, in Reclaiming the European Street, where you talk about the university, and you talk about the sheer necessity for, these, for this exchange of ideas to actually operate in, in a way in a vacuum, in an idea that, that it's, it's important for its own sake to know things, and to learn how to think, and to learn how to see meaning, structure within um, institutions and indeed within phenomena, so that uh, this, this is something you really care about, the idea yeah, of well, these institutions. I, I, the idea of the, as a community of learning. You see, I, I, I only argue for, for the freedom that this must be allowed to happen. Uh, there's a distinction between information and its reproduction, and it's important information. And then there's, a, as well as that, there's not, there's the manipulation of information, which is a craft, and then you, 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 you have uh, knowledge, and beyond that you have wisdom. But let's take it, for example, I think in, my, in the book, uh, Reclaiming the European Institute, I did an interesting exercise um, a couple of years ago, two, two, two years ago, one I did at home. I was asked to take a single concept and do, as it were, a meditation. It's the Galway lecture. I did it for the, the Galway Arts Festival. I did, yeah. and I, I did a 58-minute thing on home, where, and, uh, and I, uh, I said, well, you know, and I just did for, the, for nearly an hour, and I, I began uh, with Heidegger, and uh, on dwelling, then I went to get a bachelor, then I went on to the what is a dwelling, what is a house, what is a home. And this enabled me to, it's just given that concentrated, less just under an hour, all that I had been reading. And I had been very, very much the man was in the back of, of, my, uh, of my book there, my, my dear friend, uh, if, if it were Hartmut Rosa, who has written a book called Resonance, which speaks about how you resonate with the world. It's like how you enter the world, how the world enters you. And it's like the string of an instrument, how you resonate. I 
preferred to use the word belonging. So going back to my task then of going from dwelling construct to shelter there, then moving house and then home, and then being somewhat, I dealt with migration. To say that, for example, a person who is a migrant, it says, hasn't a house, but hasn't, he has a home. And then I de- put has a home, you see. And then I dealt with the Greek position of even when the city of Athens is in, it has to be vacated to go to a fishing village. And the mystic advises them and so that the concept can survive. So I liked doing that in many cases. The, the freedom of the person who is teaching uh, to actually deliver themselves in all their uncertainty and how they're still ploughing away at certain topics and so on. How different that is from saying uh, the reproduction of a set of PowerPoints. I can't do that because the idea that you get five or six PowerPoints and then you start marking people on the ability to give you back exactly that's a different game. It's maybe necessary, it is for many things, things like, but I do think you need a space uh, uh, for uh, the, 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 what I call the continuing uncertainty of the pursuit of knowledge that will in time become the wisdom of the time, the contested wisdom of the time, as it must always be. And to apply that to the practical world, the, the title of this book, Reclaiming the European Street, is that... Um, there is still an urgent argument to make about the European Union and about Europe itself and about what it means, whether it's an economic community, whether it's a cultural community, or whether there's a higher idealism, there's something else above all that that we all adhere to as European citizens that needs needs argument. There's a problem about what we call Europe. The first thing is that the Union that is called the European Union is not all of Europe. And there is a, a history, a philosophy, and a literature that is older than it, that stands as background to it. But as I say in my book, singularly it refuses to draw from it a rich philosophical tradition, a great poetic tradition that includes Dante Alighieri, that includes uh, so many. Then you, you, I think in many cases, I keep referring to the Vintentene Accord, of uh, Paolo Rossi and uh, of Algiera Spinelli, who are in prison when they are writing this, which is, uh, it must be much more than just not having oh, war anymore between empires. Yeah. They were in the island yeah. in prison. And they, they, they say that it must be, it must address what is, if you like, the unrealized future that is there for us to achieve uh, beyond deep inequalities, whatever. I think that's missing, and I think that one of the things that is one of the more popular books is uh, is, uh, 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 is is probably Luke van and uh, Luke van Middelaar. I think Perry Anderson hasn't it has critiqued that in in a journal oh, yes, yes, that's right, with yeah. which you are closely yes, associated that's correct, with the yeah. London in the London Review books. books. Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. that that debate of Perry Anderson's with on Luke van Middelaar is very very important. And wh- what is important is this: you you can't con- Europe. I'm in, I, am, I have become a committed European in the widest sense that draws, if you like, from the possibilities and the capacities of Europe to be something, for example, that vindicates rights, that has good relationships and the definition of work, that in relation to global responsibility, it takes on responsibilities in relation to, not just in relation to climate, but in relation to ending global poverty, putting an end to armaments and so forth. We are far from that. 
So therefore, if you take, I find myself responding to Van Middelaar's books, his two books on Journey to Europe and the other one, uh, as you can't have something that has come into being as a, s a set of strokes. He, uh, you, so what you have then is, you have, if you like, then uh, Habermas um, is saying that what you need is a kind of a constitutional order. You have Van Streek saying something very different, thing probably you have others arguing for a kind of federation and so forth. But uh, what I think you need to do is to get beyond it being just an economic block. I still have the greatest, but I think it's, the leadership in it is is one that I think has been lacking. I'm a, a member of a group of uh, of non-executive presidents. We are meeting in Rome in September. We met in Athens. That's where I gave, which is in I think the book, yes, the Athens, in. the Aristotle lecture that yes. I gave. Yes. And that, and uh, I think uh, I still hope that we can get to that bigger vision. But it, sometimes, if you like, the lesser version is a kind of a very silly thing. That, that the symbolism, for example, of uh, the so-called uh, uh, family photograph and uh, uh, of people uh, standing in the, who's jostling to be near women. So this is ridiculous. And uh, uh, my hope is that the European Parliament will have a better powers. I think that we need institutional change. There's a big debate going on now on the future of Europe. My hope is that it will be one that will involve the European streets. But you know, uh, 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 as you, before we end, about all of the things we're discussing, and particularly about Europe as well, I keep going back. I, 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 this, what is terribly important to me, and indeed as I go back to you, look at your own work, uh, if I might push it to you, is the concept of belonging. It's maybe the most, I, I, I said to, 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 to the author of Resonance, uh, Hartmut Rosa, that I would have put belonging as the title of his book rather than Resonance, because it isn't only how you vibrate with the world, but it is also you have to be of something. You have to have some attachment to something. And when I think often, you, you, people ask me questions about my personal experience of life. I, I've had to uh, 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 work, to, I've had, I felt a burden too often to have to, if you were, I'm pre-grant, uh, pre, uh, so therefore I had to finish first or second to, get a, to continue in, in, in third level. Or I worked in England in the summers, I didn't, that was a great experience, life skills. But the other the part of it is, is that, uh, is um, of having to work too hard at it. But I don't resent that. I think that I was very, very lucky. I was the lucky one in my family. My father of a family of 10 was the only one who got as far as the intercert through uh, assistance from an Australian cousin and so on. I, I think I'm very lucky to have been given uh, the opportunities of escape from certain categories I could have got caught in myself. And I'm very grateful for that. But I've paid a price. Mm -hmm. And the price, I think, at times has been uh, at the cost of sensibilities to, the, to, to so on. I, I believe now, uh, coming out of this is, and wh where I am now in trying to understand that, I've gone back very much. I love intellectual work. I've gone back to the, to the Frankfurt School. And I say to people on a bad day, 
uh, I'm going closer to Adorno now than I was than I was with Mar than I was with Marcuse. And uh, Marcuse, well, well. I, Marcuse, I was so had saved us from the Adornesque yes. pessimism. Yes, you, that's that's here in the book. But I have put it. I I uh, I I've, I've, I'd sometimes find myself very very much. I'll tell you, give you an example if I may. Yes. And it is in relation to Richard Carney's book on touch, which is a good book. Imagine having a book on touch coming out in the middle of COVID nineteen. Yes. But uh, he, he was wonderful. He wrote it out well. But. Uh, you know, the, he had, Richard has some lovely insights. Like for example, Aristotle privileged touch, Plato privileged the visual in the West. So, and in many ways, many of our problems in the West has been our following the Platonic road, where in fact, you know, you can see without being seen, so, but you can't touch without being touched and so forth, you see. But here is the thing where I differ from uh, from uh, from Carney slightly. Carney Richard said to me, and then that he, he, towards the end of his book, and also the conversation I had with him, that you can he may be that we've brought new forms of connection in uh, through uh, Skypes and things like that that can compensate maybe for that. And I say absolutely not. And that led me to that explains to you my Adonaiste. We have a real problem about adjusting technology. Uh, I, I think you know, it is creating uh, the idea that sex, science and technology are not allotted, how they are to be delivered in society in a way that is, can be emancipatory and that allows for the fullness of human flourishing. Flourishing, I think, is a Alastair McIntyre type term, you know, and, and the rest of it. But when I'm left with it in the end, this is the great privilege and gift uh, that the people gave in elect me, the honour it was to have been elected president. My test is on the street. They remember the business in relation to all of the questions about sexuality and so and so. Dear God, what kind of, who has the right to say to, to people that they can't love in their own way? What an outrageous assumption it is and all the different forms that it took in religions and in legal codes and whatever. And if people are going to seeking to belong in different ways. Why should you put any obstacle in their way? And if I am actually what informs my passion about this, is in effect, is the lives as they are lived in the street. And uh, uh, in, in a way, I, 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 you might say in my life, therefore, it has necessarily been involved all of the time with the sheer lumpiness, uh, the, successes and the failures and the joys and the agonies of people in all our half-achieved lives in different ways. And that's the thing where I would say, going back, if I, as a poet, I would say in many cases, I see it in poetry as well, the distillation of the experience, going home alone, the management of night and so forth and so on. And that is why the world, if it, when people speak about inclusive, it's not really about being allowed into all of the categories. It is about being able to uh, uh, love and feel the texture of your life with others in all of its variety and diversity uh, and, 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 and the warmth of it all. Notice it isn't accidental that I say in that poem you asked me to read that all she asked was to put her hand under his head. This is, this, this is what life is. And that's maybe the confused person that I am, but it's what I do. Michael D. Higgins, thank you very much. Thank You're you. Welcome.